Hi, my name is Heather Shorin Yeruso, and this is the Spark Zen Podcast. Thank you for listening. Today, I have the great pleasure of being in conversation with the novelist Ruth Ozeki, who is also a Zen Buddhist priest like myself in the lineage of Suzuki Roshi. The last time Ruth and I spoke about writing in Zen was in a dark, unheated stone cabin at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center in February 2019. We were both participating in a traditional 90-day practice period with Norman Fisher, a fellow writer and Zen priest who is also Ruth's teacher. Since that meeting, Ruth has published her fourth novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness, which is a brilliant, heartfelt story that addresses many challenges facing modern society, including consumerism, climate change, mental illness, bullying, hoarding, and homelessness. At the book's heart, however, is the poignant story of Benny O, an adolescent boy who begins to hear voices after the tragic death of his father, and his mother, Annabelle, who struggles to stay afloat amid an ocean of grief. Well, welcome, Ruth. It's such a pleasure to have you here in conversation um, about your beautiful novel, as well as Zen, Buddhism, and whatever else comes up during this conversation. Thank you, Heather. It sounds great. It's good to see you again. Good to see you as well. And I'm glad that we both are sitting in heated rooms, you in <laughs> Northampton, Massachusetts, and me in San Francisco. So Ruth, to offer some context for people who have yet to read the book and just to indulge and luxuriate in the <laughs> pleasure of hearing an author speak the voices of her characters, would you mind just reading the opening pages? I would love to. Thank you, Heather. I, I, I love reading out loud. It's just... I don't know why exactly, but it makes me very happy. In the beginning. A book must start somewhere. One brave letter must volunteer to go first, laying itself on the line in an act of faith from which a word takes heart and follows, drawing a sentence into its wake. From there, a paragraph amasses, and soon a page, and the book is on its way, finding a voice, calling itself into being. A book must start somewhere, and this one starts here. A boy. Shh, listen. That's my book, and it's talking to you. Can you hear it? It's okay if you can't, though. It's not your fault. Things speak all the time, but if your ears aren't attuned, you have to learn to listen. You can start by using your eyes, because eyes are easy. Look at all the things around you. What do you see? A book, obviously, and obviously the book is speaking to you, so try something more challenging. The chair you're sitting on, the pencil in your pocket, the sneaker on your foot. Still can't hear? Then get down on your knees and put your head to the seat, or take off your shoe and hold it to your ear. No, wait, if there's people around, they'll think you're mad, so try it with the pencil first. Pencils have stories inside them, and they're safe as long as you don't stick the point in your ear. Just hold it next to your head and listen. Can you hear the wood whisper? The ghost of the pine? The mutter of lead? Sometimes it's more than one voice. Sometimes it's a whole chorus of voices rising from a single thing, especially if it's a made thing with lots of different makers. But don't be scared. 
I think it depends on the kind of day they were having back in Guangdong or Laos or wherever. And if it was a good day at the old sweatshop, if they were enjoying a pleasant thought at the moment when that particular grommet came tumbling down the line and passed through their fingers, then that pleasant thought will cling to the whole. Sometimes it's not so much a thought as a feeling, a nice warm feeling like love, for example, sunny and yellow. But when it's a sad feeling or an angry one that gets laced into your shoe, then you better watch out because that shoe might do crazy shit, like marching your feet right up to the front of the Nike store, for example, where you could wind up smashing the display window with a baseball bat made of furious wood. If that happens, it's still not your fault. Just apologize to the window and say, I'm sorry to the glass. And whatever you do, don't try to explain. The arresting officer doesn't care about the crappy conditions at the bat factory. He won't care about the chainsaws or the sturdy ash tree that the bat used to be. So just keep your mouth shut. Stay calm. Be polite. Remember to breathe. It's really important not to get upset because then the voices will get the upper hand and take over your mind. Things are needy. They take up space. They want attention and they'll drive you mad if you let them. So just remember, you're like the air traffic controller. No, wait. You're like the leader of a big brass band made up of all the jazzy stuff of the planet, and you're floating out there in space, standing on this great garbage heap of a world with their hair slicked back and your natty suit and your stick up in the air, surrounded by all the eager things. And for one quick, beautiful moment, all their voices go silent, waiting till you bring your baton down. Music or madness, it's totally up to you. The book. So start with the voices then. When did he first hear them? When he was still little? Benny was always a small boy and slow to develop as though his cells were reluctant to multiply and take up space in the world. It seems he pretty much stopped growing when he turned 12, the same year his father died and his mother started putting on weight. The change was subtle, but Benny seemed to shrink as Annabelle grew as if she were metabolizing her small son's grief along with her own. Yes, that seems right. Thank you for that, Ruth. It was so lovely to hear your voice uh, speak and those characters speak through you. And just like a book has to start somewhere, <laughs> so does a podcast. So why don't we start with how these voices of these characters spoke to you out of the emptiness and eventually became bound into the form of this book. Of a book, yeah, right. You know, it's, Heather, it's, it's a mystery. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it really is. I, I often say that books come to me as voices and that is how I experience it. Sometimes it's a voice of a character. I remember when I was writing A Tale for the Time Being, the voice of now just, you know, sort of popped into my head one, one day. You know, I sat down at the computer and, and I literally, I just felt her presence. And I, I heard her say, she introduced herself and she said, hi, my name is now and I'm a time being. Do you know what a time <laughs> being is? Well, if you give me a moment, I'll tell you, right? And, and so she just starts kind of talking to me like that. And then it's my job to write down whatever it is that she's saying and, and really to try to stay out of her way. And in this case, it was a similar 
situation, although it wasn't quite as it wasn't quite as clear as that. The character of Benny came to me first, and I, I had this idea of a little boy whose father died and who starts to hear voices. And this, I think, came from an experience that happened to me after my dad died. For about a year or so after that, I, I would hear his voice calling to me. He would, you know, stand. He was. It was like he was standing behind me, and he'd clear his throat, and then he'd he'd call my name. And this was a very odd thing because I it really sounded like I was hearing this with my ears and he was on the outside of me and I'd turn around and and of course he wouldn't be there and so once again when when that kind of thing happens you remember it's like oh right he's dead and then you have all those feelings again and I've been thinking about our relationship with stuff with our possessions the things in our lives for a long time and and once again I think this had to do with the death of my parents I'm an only child and when they both died they left me a small house that was just filled to the rafters with stuff. And uh, they weren't hoarders exactly, but they had a very intense relationship with things. They were both depression era children, right? They grew up during the depression mm-hmm. and, and they, they never threw anything out. They kept everything, every piece of saran wrap, every piece of tin foil had to be washed and folded and put away so we could use it again. There was all this stuff in the house. And, and I really felt as though all of the things had stories you know, somehow attached to them. There was this, there was this box filled with polished stones and they were, they were stones from the desert. The stones had been sliced into, into thin pieces and then polished with some sort of machine and then mounted to cardboard. And there was a whole little box filled with these and they were beautiful. And I played with them when I was little and it was like my treasure. And I didn't realize until much later when I was, when I was an adult, that these were stones that my grandfather had collected in Santa Fe when he was interned in a justice department uh, concentration camp. And so here is this box of beautiful stones that I treasured when I was a child, but it had a story to it that I didn't know. And then I had this whole house and it was filled with stuff. And I realized every single one of these things in this house has a story attached to it. I kept thinking if only they could speak. And I really think that's where the, that's where the voices came from. That's where the idea of the book came from. There's the stories of these objects that we, especially if it's an object of a loved one, right? Which is what you're describing, inheriting your parents' house, all these treasures, which is similar to what Annabelle goes through, the mother where she's overwhelmed by grief and she has all these associations, especially with the poetry magnets on the refrigerator, (laughs) right? Which is how she feels her dead husband, Kenji, is speaking to her by rearranging those magnets. We become attached to those things because we impute some sort of emotional currency to those objects. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and Annabelle has a very strong um, attachment to Kenji's clothing because they still they still have his smell in the fabric, his clothing, his musical instruments. Kenji was a jazz musician, right? So all of his music and recording stuff is around, and and she just yeah, she just can't bring herself to get rid of these things because of course if she got rid of the things, she loses a little piece of him too. She has this idea that you know they had 
poetry magnets on the refrigerator and Kenji used to leave her a little poem when he left the house. And after he dies, of course, the book starts with his death. And after he dies, she just thinks that she notices the magnets shifting around and she imputes meaning to this, Mm. right? And, you know, whether it really is Kenji or not, that's kind of up to the reader to decide. And that's right. And that's a mystery that you never resolve in the book, right? It's It's just this magical realism or what is real, which is another theme, which is the question of the book itself is what is real. One of the questions. And I'm curious about the voices. And I'm wondering when we were back at Tassajara, I remember on occasion, you pulling this little black notebook out of your kimono sleeve, and you had this pen hanging on a pendant around your neck, and you would jot ideas down. So I was curious if if the, the characters for this book were also speaking to you while you spent that time at Tassajara. You're, you're totally outing me, you know? I mean, it's, <laughs> That's okay. I won't tell. It's supposed although... to be a secret, Heather. <laughs> well, I didn't notice you doing that in Zazen per se. So uh... That's because I'm very good at it. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I remember, it's funny, this is a little uh, an aside, but I remember when I was, you know, just starting to practice with Norman and, and I would have a problem as I was sitting Zazen because the voices in my head just wouldn't wouldn't shut up. And, and so I'd be sitting Zazen and suddenly I'd get an idea for whatever, you know, book or story I was working on. And I'd start to panic because I I, I had this idea and I, there was no way to write it down and I was going to forget it. And so anyway, I brought this up to Norman in Dokusan one day and I, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he basically said, just work with it. But then he, I, he said, if it gets really, really bad, it gets so bad that it distracts you and really takes you away from Zazen. He said, why don't you, don't do this in Seshin, but at home, just keep a notepad next to your Zafu. And when this happens, write down a word or two, not a lot, just like a word or two so that, so that you can put it aside and, and then come back to it after you finish Zazen. And so I did that for a while. And little by little, I... I stopped needing to. And it was very interesting because it was almost as though I started to realize that any idea that was really worth hanging on to would still be there when I finished Zazen. So there was really no need to write it down. Anyway, so I, I stopped doing that. While I was at Tassajara, I didn't have any desire to, you know, to write letters. I had no desire to journal. I had no desire, certainly no desire to go back into the, the world of Benny O and Annabelle and and all of that, I I just really put that aside. It didn't feel right. So I, yeah, so I I really, I put it aside and and I used that little notebook and that pen. It was mostly things like copying down the schedule so I wouldn't be late for something. (laughs) I I understand trying to navigate the schedule and (laughs) partly the falling away of some of that thinking is also part of the container right? That Mm -hmm. the container holds us in such a way and also challenges us in such a way physically and emotionally and psychologically that it's those 10,000 things start to settle Mm -hmm. and we can feel a little more grounded and spacious and and all those voices kind of just become attenuated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, What I love too about the hearing voices, it's just really brilliant how you use that in so many aspects of the book, 
So we have Benny who's hearing voices and the reader doesn't know if he's really hearing voices, if these objects are really speaking to him or is it the um, beginning of schizoaffective disorder, which is what he is eventually um, diagnosed with. And then also the finding the voice as in a metaphoric way of coming of age for Benny, as well in some ways for Annabelle. She starts to learn how to live on her own, finding her voice, uh, if you will, amid all the grieving, all the hoarding, being a single mom. And then also finding the voice as a writer, as an artist. The book itself is a character that's fine, that's helping Benny find its voice. And you yourself as the author is also finding her voice in the coming together of all these voices, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I don't even know how you kept track of <laughs> as you were doing this, because it's, it's quite impressive to have such a theme running through a novel that is an expression for each character, if, if that makes sense. The finding the voice is working so well on so many different levels in this, in this novel. Thank you. No, I was thinking about that very explicitly, the way that we hear voices and the way that we find voices, find our own voices. For example, Annabelle, the death of her husband really made her mute in a way, right? She, she lost something very, very important there. And I think that the voice that she really was able to find was the voice to talk back to the authorities in order to protect her son. And, and so she was able to find a voice to defend her, her boy and to push back when she felt that the diagnoses and the medication and the path that was being set for him was inappropriate or wrong. And so that was, you know, certainly one of the, the ways that she, she found a very strong voice in the end. I, I was playing with this idea of the book being a dialogue between Benny and his book. So the book is narrating itself into being, but it's also narrating Benny into being, right? Or is it Benny who is narrating the book? It, it's sort of like a chicken and the egg conundrum, which came first, the book or the boy. And so I was kind of playing with that as a sort of little paradox throughout. I was also, though, thinking about how we have all of these metaphorical expressions like that book really spoke to me. What if you take that metaphor and you make it literal? Right. And that's what I was doing here. It was just like, okay, this is no longer metaphorically, the book is speaking to me. The book is actually speaking, right? The book is actually <laughs> speaking itself, right, into being. And what that does is it implicates the reader. It makes the reader become a voice hearer too. Because if you are reading the book, you are hearing the voice of the book speaking to you. And the book is an object. And so, that turns the reader, anybody who picks up the book to read it, it, it becomes a voice hearer too, is, is kind of implicated in this whole process. And by doing this as well, that's also a dramatic tension, right? Between Benny who's hearing voices and then he starts to hear the voice of his book coming through him and he resists that, mm -hmm. resisting, mm -hmm. resisting the call to adventure, resisting the call to become who who he or she needs to become. And then also with that too, the tension between that is also a plot device, right? It moves the whole book forward. And then also it, it has both in a way, like you're saying, the book speaks to the reader. So it's like that metafiction where the book is 
stepping the book stepping out of that proscenium arch if you will right it's a it break it's breaking the fourth wall by directly addressing the the reader exactly yeah that's yeah. right that's so right. i I, I bow to your to your creative <laughs> genius around that. I, I studied a lot of Shakespeare when I was in college, and yeah. I, I've always loved I've always loved that device. Shakespeare, so, she is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much about Shakespeare that I shamelessly and sort of poorly imitate. The breaking the fourth wall being one of the devices that that you see in a lot of the plays, but then also the idea of the recursive structure or the play within the play. Mm. And here you have books within books within books. There's a beautiful term for it in in painting, the picture within the picture within the picture, right? It's French. It's called mise en abîme mise en abîme. And it's a way of suggesting something that is eternal. It's timeless. It sort of transcends space and time, expands space and time in a different direction. And that's something I've always just found incredibly just fun and mind-bending. Borges does that a lot. And so many of Borges' stories are about exactly this kind of conjuring, this kind of thing, which is why Borges ends up finding his way finding his way into well. the book yeah. as well yeah. let's just hover on the voices for a few more moments did you as the author know that that benny was going to be diagnosed with schizoid affective disorder or did that sort of gradually present itself because that was certainly my question as a reader was oh is this magical realism mm-hmm. or is it actually the beginnings of a mental illness I don't see diagnosis as being absolute. I see diagnosis as being a cultural construct. In other cultures, somebody who hears voices would be looked at as a saint or a shaman or a healer. In our culture, if you tell a psychiatrist that you're hearing voices, chances are you'll probably be diagnosed with some sort of psychosis, which is not to say that that mental illness is not real, right? It is. And it's a problem when it causes a person to suffer or when it causes people a family for example to suffer then it be, then it is problematic and and of course it should be treated but on the other hand you know there's a there's a kind of sort of reflexive tendency to diagnose and then treat pharmaceutically conditions that are not what they appear to be they're not necessarily harmful right and there are a lot of people who hear voices who you know do not are not bothered by them and in fact can are really helped by them and uh, there's also a lot of people who sort of fall sort of victim to this kind of pathologizing of unique unshared mental states. And so what I was really concerned with in this book is to recognize that what we consider, for example, what we consider normal, it is a cultural construct. And it it's a very, very narrow definition. My idea is really, why can't we widen out that definition? Why can't we make that definition more all-inclusive and invite more people into it, rather than using normal as a way of excluding other you know, others, right, who, who are psychologically diverse. So that was certainly something that was in my mind as I was writing this. I mean, the other thing too, is that I also have had run-ins with the psychiatric professions. When I was a kid, when I was a little older than Benny, I was sent to a locked ward, a psychiatric ward. I, I think back on that time and I think, what were they thinking? There was, there were so many things really messed up things going on in my life. There was nothing wrong with me. I was traumatized and was acting out, but it was, it was not a mental illness. It was a instance of trauma. I know what it is to wind up on a locked 
psych ward. And I knew that that would happen to Benny. I, I wanted to really open up the question about, is this just a unique experience, unshared experience that this boy is having, or is it the beginning of a serious psychiatric illness? And that was the question I wanted to keep open during the whole, during the whole thing. And, and you do also address that with the Slovenian disabled poet, the bottle man, who actually is encouraging. He's like a father figure for Benny, and he's encouraging Benny or uh, letting him know that these voices, this is the muse that's speaking to him, right? That's right. That's and, right. and so he so he acts as a foil to help. Benny find his own voice. You take this homeless poet and this teenage girl who's also homeless, yeah. and they and they're like the heroine and hero of the story in many ways. They befriend Benny and they help him. They take care of him. Slavos is the the bottle man's name, and he also hears voices. And Benny is very surprised. He's like, "Do you hear voices too?" And and Slavos, you know is kind of offended and says, of course I hear voices. I'm a poet, you know, what do you think? And yes, he helps Benny find his own voice and helps him sort of come to terms with his experience. And then the Aleph the, is, a, is a performance artist and also an, and a visual artist. And th this theme of creativity is running through the book. And this is something I think about all the time. We live in a culture, and once again, I'm, gonna, I'm talking about cultural constructs here. We live in a culture that has somehow luckily decided that people who are artists, who have visions and commit the visions to paper or to sculpture, that that's okay, right? People like me who have characters and books and in, in my mind, and I commit that to paper, that that's okay. That's, that's something to be celebrated. Musicians who hear beautiful music and then they write it down and perform it, that's considered to be a good thing. That's Mozart. Culture. Yeah, <laughs> right. And, and so aren't we lucky? I feel very lucky that I do live in a culture that, that not just tolerates, but celebrates these things because I can equally well imagine living in a culture that didn't and, and would think that these are dangerous hallucinations and that as a result, I am a dangerous person and I should be locked up. I can, I can imagine that dystopian society very easily. So I'm curious too, then with regard to the hearing voices, let's talk a little bit about the practice of Zazen or seated meditation where we're sitting facing this wall. And as you were saying before about hearing voices, how to work with those voices, especially if they are incessant and maybe commanding of your attention. Could you speak a little bit about kind of what the practice is, right? Mm. When we're on the meditation cushion, working with, with arising voices? This is where I, I want to kind of draw the practice of writing together with the practice of, of Zazen and to kind of draw a parallel line there in a way. Certainly when I write, and this was more true at the beginning when I was just starting out writing, I would write something and then immediately I would start hearing these critical inner voices saying, oh, that's a piece of shit. Nobody's going to want to read that. That's terrible. You, you'll never be a writer. All of those voices that I think we hear, the, the sort of critical voices of the inner judge, the inner critic. Myself and thousands of readers are 
very glad that you didn't listen to those voices telling you not to write. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. This is where it's not dissimilar to when you first start sitting. You have this idea of what what good zazen should be, what good meditation should be, in the same way that I had this idea of what good writing should be. So I would sit there and I, I was, would do all of these things that I thought was meditating. In other words, I would try to empty my mind. Well, well minds, you know, minds don't like to be emptied. That's not what they're there for. Um, they're there to think. And so the the effort of emptying one's mind, as you find out eventually, once you've sat and tried long enough, you you realize, oh, that's just not, that's not practical. That's not going to work. What happens is that time and time and time again, you're sitting there trying to, trying to kind of calm your mind and you get hijacked by thoughts. And then you eventually you notice the thoughts and very often a little critical voice comes in saying, oh, you're doing it all wrong. And, you know, then you try to come back to the breath. You try to come back to the body. And you do that fine for a couple of breaths. And then once again, you're hijacked by another thought and you're taken away. And then you catch yourself and then you come back. Norman always talks about zazen as as the practice of return. And I I really like that because it's a way of taking zazen off the cushion and bringing it into the world and bringing it into the writing world. So what over the, the decades that I've been sitting and the decades that I've been writing, this idea of a sort of dogged, patient, non-judgmental return seems to me to really be what is important here. And little by little, after you've done that a few million times, you start to develop a different kind of relationship with the voices that crop up. And it starts to get funny. You make friends with the the voices. You realize that they're not evil. You develop a kind of intimacy with all of that chatter that's going on inside your head. And, And eventually what happens is that it does Still, it does settle. It does get quiet, but not if you try to force it to, because that's just not going to work. Right. And the same thing with writing. I'm sure thousands of people who are writers, whether they do it professionally or as amateurs, although I don't like that word amateur, but just knowing that you have to sometimes just dive in, right. The book has to start somewhere that most likely wasn't your first page right? That wasn't probably the first paragraph that came into your head. And sometimes, at least when I used to be a newspaper reporter, boy, getting that first paragraph down, especially under deadline, one of my writing teachers said, you just got to plunge, plunge. And that process helps to reveal what that first paragraph might be. And what you're saying too, about that return, it's like noticing the thoughts that are arising and returning to what's going on in the moment. And the same thing when you're writing, those inner critics show up, I'm just gonna go back to the story, the voices that are the voices of the characters, those are the ones I'm gonna listen to, (laughs) not the ones telling me to stop. (laughs) That's right. I, I love the word amateur. Oh, okay. Way. Great. Because it's, it, it's, you know, the etymology is from love, you know, mm, I, what I, I know don't that. like, oh. yeah, what I don't like is the word professional. professional. That's what, that screws you up. <laughs> you know? That goes back to Suzuki Roshi in the beginner's mind, right? Possibilities are endless in the expert's mind. He used the word expert, I guess. The expert's mind possibilities are few. Always beginner's mind each moment. So you can hear the character's revealing their story to you. And given that we're both Zen 
Buddhist priests. This this book, as as your last novel as well, the tale for the time being, just replete with with the Buddhist teachings, including, of course, both of the titles, the tale for the time being, and this novel, the book of form and emptiness. So let's talk a little bit about how the teachings of Zen and the Buddha, of course, has influenced your your writing, not only the process of writing, but also quite clearly the content and the characters of the writing. Well, these two books were the most overtly Buddhist, the most overtly Zen of the four novels that I've written. I think that in a way, all of my books have been influenced by my practice in more or less obvious ways. I always have a question or a koan at the heart of every book. In the case of uh, A Tale for the Time Being, I was reading Dogen's Uji, which is a fascicle that he wrote in, he, he lived from 1200 to 1253, I think. And it's, it's a short but very bewildering fascicle about time. And, and time is a bewildering subject. I was reading this fascicle and I was feeling that, that Uji was, was a very perplexing text and very dense and that I needed to approach it in a slightly different way. And the way I ended up approaching it was, was through writing the novel. And it wasn't directly about Uji, but I was certainly reading Uji as I was writing the novel. I think there's so many ways of understanding and so many ways of responding to the teachings. And this apparently is one of the ways that I, I do that. With the Book of Form and Emptiness too, I was thinking about the Heart Sutra and the skandhas and about the perplexing lines in the Heart Sutra. Form is not different from emptiness. Emptiness is not different from form. Form itself is emptiness. Emptiness itself form. And just thinking about what does that mean? What does that feel like? How does that manifest? How can this be? How can I understand this? And of course, what that suggests too are the three marks of existence, the impermanence, no self. I mean, there was very much, I think in this book, the theme of no self runs through it as, as well. The other mark, suffering. Suffering, of course. Right. So right. the right. suffering, it's... the grieving of both, both Benny and his mother. That's right. The impermanence, right, with opening of Kenji's death. Mm-hmm. And then the insubstantiality or the not self-characteristic, not only of human beings, but all, all beings, mm-hmm. whether they're sentient or non-sentient. One of my favorite parts of the book is the bindery. Mm-hmm. And I love it for many reasons. One is because just like yourself and like Benny, I just loved being in the library when I was a child. There was a comfort to just seeing all those books lined up not not having any idea about what was inside of them. And then that card catalog, I'm dating myself. <laughs> and then just the capaciousness of the library, especially when you're a child, right? It's overwhelming and comforting. And also it's wondrous. And could you speak about the bindery? It seems to me that it works as a symbol of what we would call progress, if you will, right? Left behind where we bind books, and then also a metaphor for the, the form and emptiness, right? Mm-hmm. Where, mm-hmm. where Benny has what we would call Kensho, direct insight mm-hmm. into his lack of substantiality, which I know is not an easy thing to talk about in a podcast. Yeah, but, well. 
<laughs> well, perhaps you might want to set up that a little bit by reading a few passages from, sure, sure. from Benny's experience in the bindery. Let me give a little narrative explanation too. This is maybe about three quarters of the way through the book. And, and Benny has just been involved in a pretty violent street demonstration and he's run to the library to escape. He's been tear gassed and it was a pretty shocking experience for him. And the bindery is this place in the library where books were bound. And in this particular bindery, in this particular library, the, the bindery is no longer being used. So it's kind of an abandoned bindery. All of the binding needs of the library are being outsourced. So they're, they're in the process of dismantling and decommissioning this bindery. And so it is a mystical place. It is a place where magic happens. And it's also the place where Benny, this is the second time that Benny has stumbled into the bindery. It, it's the place where he can hear the voice of his book speaking to him most clearly. It's the place where he first heard his book speak and what the book said was, a book must start somewhere. One brave letter must volunteer to go first. So the first words of the, the book were actually sp spoken in the bindery. And, and so at this moment here, Benny is in the bindery and the book is speaking directly to him. And I'll just read a couple of paragraphs here. Do you remember our conversation? Do you remember the places we went and the things we saw? The bindery was our access, the point in space that contains all other points. And that night you were a boy unbound, a tiny astronaut taking your first leap into an infinite and unknowable universe. For the first time, you could see the voices of the things you'd been hearing for so long, all that clamorous matter vying for your attention. With your supernatural ears, you were able to perceive with absolute clarity the sinuous shapes and contours of the sounds that matter makes as it moves through space and time and mind. Some of these sounds were so beautiful they made you laugh out loud and clap your hands with delight, and others were so sad they made tears run down your face. And, oh, the visions we had. Container ships glittering on a moonlit night off the coast of Alaska. Pyramids of sulfur rising yellow in the mist. The plundered moon and all its craters, globes and stars and asteroids. A jet black crow with a diamond tiara. A flock of rubber duckies spinning through the Pacific gyres. At the sound of a footstep, a young girl freezes and Andromeda sparkles in the firmament. Fires rage as the redwoods burn, and in the deep ocean, a pilot whale carries her dead baby on her nose, while sea turtles weep briny tears into nets of plastic. How impossible it is to put into words this infinitude of the unbound. In a single instant, we witnessed constellations on the brink of constellating, assemblages in flux. We perceived the dynamic flow of vibrant matter materializing as a marble or a baseball bat a sneaker, or a story, a jazz riff, or a viral contagion, an ovum, or an antique silver spoon. And so I think I'll stop there because the narrator book is, is uh, a bit, bit verbose because it's a book. <laughs> I mean, of course it is, right? And, um, and so the book goes on and on, but I'll just stop there. <laughs> that gives you a taste of it. Thank you so much for reading those passages. I, I find it encouraging and also instructive 
that the way Benny finds some relief from his suffering is by becoming unbound in the bindery. Mm -hmm. In some ways, his realization of himself as an insubstantial being that's impermanent and the interconnectedness because of this insubstantiality, the connection to everything in the world. And this, this can show this direct insight, this full body non-dual experience of Benny's helps alleviate a lot of his suffering. After that, he's a different person. And actually I didn't crystallize that when I was reading the novel, but as you read that, that's what was arising for me was through his falling apart, his becoming unbound or realizing his unboundness, there's an alleviation of suffering, which of mm -hmm. course is also one of the main teachings of the Buddha. That is what I had in mind. The bindery is a place where, where all things exist. And yeah, it's this kind of vast sea of, of emptiness, things that have not yet taken form, you know, and, and Benny experiences that. And the book, of course, being a book puts words to it, right? Because that's what books do. Yes, that's what books do. I'd love for you to speak a little bit about adolescence being your main characters, your main narrators in these last two novels, and the juxtaposition of their life of wonder and connection with the natural world, and the kind of quotidian adult life of Annabelle and the hoarding. This idea of adolescence is interesting. I think that when I was younger, I was writing about adults. And as I get older, I seem to be writing more and more about adolescence. And I'm not sure why that is. I mean, adolescence was a very, very intense period for me, I'm sure for everybody, but I can only speak for myself. It was just a very intense period for me. And I suffered tremendously. And at the same time, I, I was, I, I was very alive then. So I think I go back to the, to the questions and to the feelings of that particular period in order to try to understand what was going on. Why was it so hard? What were the issues that were sort of manifesting at that time? So I, I do end up being drawn back there. I have this theory that, again, I can't speak for every writer, but this is my hunch <laughs> that, and here is where I am going to speak for every writer, that I, I, have, I have this strong hunch that every character a fiction writer writes about is a facet of self in some way or another, that we're drawn to create characters in a certain way because that character is reflecting part of who we are. If we were a different person, we would write the same character in a different way. So there's clearly something in the way that each writer forms a character, gives birth to a character that reflects some facet of self. And of course, being a Zen Buddhist, I, I have a very loose and fluid notion of what self is, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and just and, obviously about emptiness, growing, like you said, it's very interesting to me when you said when you were younger, you wrote more about adults. And now that you're older, your writing includes these perspectives, these, uh, these narrators who are actually adolescents. Mm -hmm. And, and that kind of liminal space, I mean, I guess we're always in a liminal space, but the liminal space of adolescence, 
where they're growing spiritually and psychologically, emotionally, and physically into different beings. And it's much more noticeable are changing at that age. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's right. It's a very emergent time. Well, I'd like to end, I would not like to end, I'd like to talk with you forever, but since there is time in our, there's time, time, there's clock time. I want to just touch on the snow globes. The Elif creates these snow globes from scratch. When I was reflecting back on these snow globes, I thought, well, in some ways, from a, a Buddhist perspective, we're kind of all in our own little snow globe, right? The snow globe is my universe. And we can't share the other person's snow globe experience. So in that way, we're kind of bound. And within that globe, there's this emptiness and these little forms that are floating up and down. She has a Fukushima globe that shows the destruction of that nuclear reactor melting down. Could comment on where that came from, her creating these snow globes that are capturing certain moments, almost like a photograph, if you will, mm-hmm. and has all these different parts in it. That in itself is a form and emptiness. Mm-hmm. The image of the snow globe was, was a kind of random thing. I, I made a rule for myself that in order to introduce a kind of unexpectedness, a randomness, a serendipity, in order to escape the sort of the confines of my own mind that that if somebody gave me something i would put it in the book because i otherwise it it gets boring if it's just my own ideas there's a limit to what i can generate so i try to invite the world in as much as possible to use that metaphor of the snow globe my thinking my imagination is constrained it, it's think of it as a snow globe and so i want to bust open the globe and allow other things to kind of interpenetrate. And so my friend came back from the Bahamas and gave me this snow globe of uh, a sea turtle. And there was a bigger sea turtle on the outside and a little little sort of baby sea turtle on the inside. And, and I thought, oh, this is great. I'll give it to Annabelle. And so I gave it to Annabelle. And the next thing I know, she's on eBay buying more snow globes because she started a snow globe collection. So then the snow globe became a kind of symbol for her relationship with with Benny in that she's stuck on the outside and Benny is enclosed in his world, right? And and he's hearing voices and the voices are like the little sparkles in the snow globe and and she can't get in there to help him. She's just stuck on the outside sort of watching him. And, And so that ended up being a kind of metaphor. And then when Benny goes to visit the Aleph at her art studio, which is in an abandoned you know, factory building. I knew that she needed to be making some kind of art and suddenly realized that what she was making were these catastrophic snow globes. They were snow globes of terrible natural disasters or not natural, dis- unnatural disasters, like the meltdown at Fukushima, like 9-11. There was a 9-11 snow globe. There was a Hurricane Katrina snow globe. They were these contained little worlds, as you say, sort of mo- moments in time that were in some way impactful and pivotal and, and changed the world in some, in some sort of way. And um, so she lets Benny choose one. And so he chooses one and brings it back home to Annabelle. I wasn't really thinking of it more in any other kind of way. This idea certainly of the mind as being a kind of contained unit and wanting to somehow break out of that. 
was certainly something, it was an image that was strong and kind of a guiding for the, you know, for the book. And so I started putting these snow globes in, in a kind of random way. What would be in your snow globe world right now? Oh my goodness. Right now, what is in my snow globe world are all of the, and it's a catastrophic snow globe for sure. I I am sitting at a desk in my snow globe and what is swirling around my head are all of the receipts and bills and life admin stuff and just all of the legal documents that everything that I have neglected for the last eight years while I was writing this book, right? That's what's swirling around my head right now. And it's, it's an absolute disaster in here, in my, in my snow globe. Well, I'm um, sorry to have yeah. shaken up. No, 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 it's fine. Your snow because, globe as we end here. Because <laughs> I am going to deal with this. It is now time for me to deal with all of these pieces of paper. And so I am doing that. that and everything is just going to settle out and it'll be fine. And then the, the 10,000 things will settle to the That's bottom right. of the globe That's and right. they'll just be pristine, spacious awareness, unbounded. Yeah. Until I trip and turn up the waters again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ruth Ozeki, it's been more than a pleasure speaking with you. I so appreciate your time, your wisdom, your creativity, and your wholehearted presence. Thank you very much for Thank your you, time. Heather. That, yeah, that was, that was really fun. Really enjoyed that. Thank you for listening to the Sparks End podcast. I hope you found this conversation illuminating and engaging. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to my Spark Zen Substack newsletter and follow me on Twitter at Spark Zen. The opening and closing music is courtesy of my friend Jeffrey Cantu Ledesma and Alexis Georgopoulos 